Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 5, Powers, Part 3. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel as we eagerly anticipate the DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we cover Kryptonian powers in Man of Steel and how they worked in the film. This is the third and final part of our three-part series covering Kryptonian powers in Man of Steel. In this episode, we cover super speed, flight, and more. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, go back and check them out, as all three parts of the series were recorded together and reference each other. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of wonderful room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for the fans who loved Man of Steel and who loved to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. For now, we're doing general topic episodes like this one. This is not going to be your typical rundown of superpowers. If you've seen The Science of Superman or things like that, we're going to have a little bit of that, but this is going to be a lot of just crazy fan theory. The approach we take on these things is how can we rationalize the powers to come to an understanding of the mechanics behind them? Not in order to come to a physical reality of how they may occur, that ship has sailed, but rather to see what guided the creation of the film, and how these may predict or project the use of Superman's powers into the future. That's part of the joy that I have in this podcast, is trying to dissect things, pull it apart, challenge it with a bunch of different theories, and see if we can't find out where the moving pieces are, where the underlying assumptions are, and maybe come up with a coherent or cohesive theory on how everything works. No promises, because after all, at the end of the day, it is a flying man with physics-defying abilities. But it's fun to try. And if you think it's fun too, stick around and listen to the podcast. You're the answer, son. Okay, next up is number 11, my absolute favorite power, bar none, super speed. I think I said in a previous episode that second only to Superman, and sometimes even trumping him, my favorite superhero in the world is The Flash particularly Wally West. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that The Flash was what got me back into DC Comics, got me back into comics just generally speaking, helped me rediscover Superman and my love for uh, all comics. Yes, I do lean towards mainstream superhero stuff, but do read everything. I do enjoy everything. That includes all those wacky indies. Because of my love for The Flash, I've been doing meditations in speed almost as long as I've been doing meditations in Superman and his character and his ability dating back well over a decade, right? So despite that, I don't think I want to go way too much into this, but I probably will. So uh, the reason I raise speed at this point is not because I think it's the next power we see, but rather because it's the power that we don't see. Now that sounds kind of weird, but there are a lot of complaints, potential issues, alleged plot holes, 
raised about the tornado scene, okay? And I don't endeavor to tackle all of them here. (laughs) It's too early in the podcast for that. I'm not ready for it, to be honest. I have all my arguments lined up to uh, tackle all of them just yet. I I do want to figure out a, a nice, persuasive, cohesive, coherent, complete package that sort of attacks the, the the topic from every angle in a way that's persuasive. But before that sort of magnum opus that we're building towards, uh, it is reasonable to raise the fact that a lot of people went into that tornado scene or criticized that tornado scene expecting sort of that Smallville red-blue blur effect. And what I mean by that is they don't understand why Clark couldn't just zip in, zip out, unseen, invisibly rescuing Pa Kent without issue. They don't understand why he couldn't use his super speed. And there's a lot of answers to that. First of all, we don't know that he has super speed yet. And we'll talk about that just a bit later in this same segment. But as far as having super speed, obviously the movie lays out the precedent that his powers are discovered over time and were not discovered all at once. We know for a fact that he didn't discover flight until meeting Jorel, right? So for all we know, super speed isn't something that came to him at the age of 18. And in fact, there is an argument to be made that super speed as we traditionally understand it or see it doesn't actually even rear its head in the film. The speed that we see in the film is all highly physical, and it tends to all be flight-based speed. We don't see Clark run quickly. We don't see Clark blur or dash or jump anywhere quickly. There isn't sort of that same, I keep repeating the word, I may be using it wrong, uh, that same physicality to his speed. Rather, it's a more ethereal flight-based speed. And to the extent that he has that speed, we see that it is a physical, practical, realistic speed. You know, he does sonic booms. He impacts things with crushing enormous force. Like we talked about in the strength section, this is where that force equals mass times acceleration, F equals MA, comes to light. We see him crash into a mountain and cause colossal damage. We see him cannonball through the world engine and just puncture through it and damage it. We see him knock out the uh, the scout ship through that same sort of projectile-like speed. So we don't know that he can do these kind of speed cheats where he runs up to something, interacts with it at high speed, and then comes away effortlessly and without impact or without incident, right? To put it more maybe graphically, we don't know that colliding into or trying to catch or running into Jonathan Kent at high speed wouldn't turn Jonathan Kent into a fine red mist uh, and just imagine how that would mess up Clark. We don't see him manipulating things at speed. We don't see him, say, flipping through a book at high speed. And we don't know that, as far as we can tell with this Superman, if he were to do something like that, those pages would catch on fire, right? The reason The Flash is distinguishable from Superman is, at least in the modern comics, he had the speed force. Uh, In the Silver Age, he had sort of, he would use the word molecules as a catch-all, as if, you know, most of the readers at the time were not sophisticated enough to understand quite what molecules meant. So as long as he said molecules and vibration pretty much justified any of his actions or his defiance of physics, 
in the more modern era, Wally West did the same kinds of defiance of signs with a sort of quasi-mystical catch-all called the Speed Force. And the Speed Force was a, uh, a lubricant to help make all the superheroing tropes true. So all the things that you want the Flash to be able to do, like flip through that book at blazing fast speed, but without having the pages catch fire, the Speed Force let him do it. So it would help him moderate his friction and his interaction with the environment and the air and his sustenance and all those kind of things to make a ground level, super fast speedster practical and possible within the world. And to be honest, something that can catch all those things and make all those things possible, it has to be quasi-mystical, right? There's no real elegant way to make that all happen with one thing, except to make it basically magic. And I think that's one of the great innovations of the modern Flash. Now, they've stepped away from that a little bit, and I think they've tried to add some mechanics to it that honestly, I don't think quite work as well as they did back when it was a little bit more mystical. But that's neither here nor here. We're talking about Superman. We're talking about Man of Steel. And what I'm getting at is Superman and Man of Steel doesn't have the speed force. He doesn't have this thing to mitigate his impact with the world. He doesn't have this thing to stop the air from being ripped out from his lungs when he travels at high speeds. He doesn't have this thing that stops him from causing sonic booms should he travel faster than the eye can see. And so in the tornado scene, had Superman had those kind of abilities, or rather Clark, you know, we if he had the super speed that we see in the movie, but not this sort of extra speed force moderator to make sure that he's able to use the powers in trope-like fashions, then it's simply not possible for him to save Pa Kent, at least not in that manner. I, I know that a lot of the objections have to do with him being able to rescue him in other ways. That's not the show. We'll talk about that in another show. Now, another thing I want to just quickly talk about with super speed is also how it relates to super strength, right? So one of the ways you can make super speed work, other than this sort of arbitrary force vector that we've been talking about all throughout, is to brute force it, right? So that you kick off the ground with such force and such energy that you propel yourself forward with super speed, right? Something that I don't think people quite intuit necessarily is that striking the earth with such force and such speed doesn't generate a traditional footfall. It doesn't generate a, you don't get to run super fast just because you can kick the ground super hard. Uh, maybe that's a better way of saying it. Because the mechanics of running anticipate a certain footfall and gravity and arc to your movements. At a certain speed, running is just jumping, right? And so suddenly at a certain point, you're no longer like running fast. You're actually making giant aerial leaps with big long gaps in between them, traveling at extraordinary speed. And even then there's an upper limit, right? There's escape velocity. At the point that you hit escape velocity, you cease to be able to travel any faster because all you're doing is traveling into space. So what I'm getting at is you can brute force speed, but only to a certain extent. You can't really brute force super speed in the way that we want to see a flash, right? And that doesn't translate to sort of Superman running super fast, right? He can run super fast, but only to an extent, because at a certain point, he starts to 
make those leaping jumps and where his each step is like a hundred meters and and he's flying in this large arc and it doesn't look like running it's no longer running anymore and that's one of the reasons like i said i love this film because they treat super speed the way you want to see it treated and the way they did it was they handled it through flight because flight takes out that awkward weird running mechanic unless you're basically striking the ground parallel to the ground and at that point you don't even look like you're running either it, lo it looks very weird it looks like you're sorry let's get off the ta tangent by using flight you get to have your super speed without having to worry about the mechanics of running about bobbing up and down without having to worry about escape velocity without having to worry about those things that would make super speed look goofy or not look right so this film chose to show super speed through flight primarily the exception is feora in that scene that is so iconic and everybody loves it because it's a great scene showing reaction speed combat speed it looks like a dragon ball z scene she just sort of almost visually teleports between various positions right and again they skipped over the running because there's no way to make that transition that movement through running right even if you're super speed with super strength striking the ground at high speed will send you flying in an arc you won't get that sort of flat teleporting speed that we see in those situations so instead i'd argue that mechanically what she's doing is essentially flying downwards she's willing herself to be in the positions that she needs to be in maybe she's just translating it through foot movement foot motions and footfalls and things like that but intuitively uh, without consciously thinking it she's exerting a flying force downwards to ensure that she moves levelly and with the ground in a fashion that we anticipate or expect to see rather than these weird arcing leaping jumps that would happen if you struck the ground super hard super fast right that's overly mechanical it's a little nutty that i went into all that detail but what i'm getting at is this film just really nailed it on how to handle speed i really enjoyed the portrayal of it i understand why they didn't have that sort of classic scene of superman running through or clark running through a cornfield at high speed because i'll be honest most times it doesn't look right most times if you're smart what you have to do is you have to obscure the feet you have to obscure the motion because it it just honestly doesn't work it doesn't work without something like the speed force to sort of cover it up and and, and uh, smooth it out okay i'm i'm going way too long on this episode but like i said i've done meditations on a lot of these powers a lot of these things uh for for ages so i've been dying to talk about them and so you get the benefit or perhaps the bane of that <laughs> all right just real quick we'll also talk about how speed is actually a whole collection of powers right so it's it's traveling speed so you can put yourself into something like an autopilot and how quickly can you get from a to b but that's with no interruptions nothing in between it's just a to b and obviously that's exhibited when superman travels from the indian ocean back to metropolis it's exhibited when superman and zod go all the way out to geosynchronous orbit and come back those things are sort of like traveling speed so it just shows straight line velocity you know how quickly can you possibly travel at 
you know, top speed or, or, or in a straight line or without sort of complex maneuvering. Then there's reaction time, right? So even if you can travel at those long, fast, high speeds, maybe your reaction times are just human. So a classic example that a lot of people like to use is, for example, the Green Lantern. The Green Lantern core, obviously they have faster than light abilities to give them the power to travel between galaxies and planets. But nonetheless, Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Kyle Rayner, and Guy Gardner, they all have human reaction times. They're all just human. So although they have this incredible traveling speed, their reaction times, their reaction speed is still within human range. This film doesn't show a whole lot of examples of individuals working outside of human reaction time. I think the best example, of course, is the Feora speed blitz. And so the behaviors during that action, also in the fight with Superman, she tends to indicate that she has faster than human reaction time. And that's tempered by the fact, though, that she also likes to play with her prey. And so sometimes it's a little hard to gauge just how fast she can react to things. But so far, we don't have sort of a blow them out of the water example of heightened reaction times. So then if you combine the reaction time with traveling speed and you add uh, acceleration, deceleration, and maneuverability to it, then you get that third uh, sort of collection of powers, which is the functional speed. The speed at which you can do things, the speed at which you can maneuver and consciously do things, consciously interact with the environment, maneuver around it, deal with things, react to things. It's possible, for example, to have super high traveling speed to have super high reaction time, but then if you don't have the ability to accelerate, decelerate, maneuver, or react, you could be fully conscious and aware, you could be traveling at high speed, but then still be not able to do anything about it. So I think in the traditional power fantasy of superheroes, they, they get sort of the full suite of powers usually. So Superman is expected to also have high functional speed. And again, I don't think that we saw anything particularly outside of human range necessarily, but in the Smallville fight, you do see somebody who is processing things pretty extraordinarily, pretty quickly, and pretty frantically. I know it's choreographed, and uh, we'll have a post about that on the blog, you know, what we consider plot holes or not, or what we consider canon or not. Fight choreography is something a little bit debatable about that, but the fight choreography in this film was quite realistic, uh, but it was also quite involved and intense. And if you've ever watched like an MMA battle or something, there's only so much that you can sort of consciously do. A lot of it is almost a plan or autopilot that the fighter is on. And so it's not like there's tons of these complex branching decisions being made in real time constantly. It's more sort of a default pattern that you just keep falling into, default training that you you give yourself muscle memory that you, you fall into. Contrast that with the Smallville battle and the uh, Zod battle. And both of them, you see that the Kryptonians are making so many little tactical decisions, so many different little choices. And that's why the battle is so branching and varied and different. It isn't just sort of a repetition of ground and pound or a typical traditional battle tactic. It, it is a high-speed chess match that you really have to sort of watch these fights over and over and over again to see everything that's going on. Again, it's not completely outside of human range, but it is quite exceptional. And so that's just another like taste or example of the super speed that we've, we've seen. Again, I, I like how they're handling it because if you did give them that sort of godly 
time freeze neo in the matrix sort of ability it really becomes hard to write around honestly i mean at that point you're giving the characters the ability essentially to stop time analyze the situation and come to the most rational most practical most functional optimal solution in any and every case and when you do that it breaks the story it makes it so hard to have organic realistic human kind of interactions right and so by dialing back superman's reaction time and functioning speed and making it more within human ranges we get to have more human stories now again I'm, I might be completely missing something and I may be speaking out of turn, but that's roughly where I think super speed is at. I've definitely gone too long on super speed. So let me stop that here and let's move on to number 12, flight. Number 12, flight. And this arrives in the midpoint of the movie in one of the most seminal scenes, a scene that a lot of people consider the most joyous and high point of the film in terms of optimism and sort of that classic Superman, Clark discovering that he can fly. You can just see how much that liberates him, how much the weight of the world falls off his shoulders, how much he's going to embrace this new role as soon as he is able to take to the skies and have that utter freedom, this unique ability. In the Superman animated series, second episode, when Clark finds out about his alien origins, he's really struggling with the information and it confronts him as something, you know, terrifying and something that sets him apart as a freak. But how he deals with it is that he starts to run and run faster and run faster and then leap further than he's ever leaped before until he realizes that he's flying. And it creates that same sense of liberation and freedom in that Clark as it does for our adult Superman here. Like I said before, I really like the way that they handled the flight, or I, I really like how the film handles the powers. They give us all the traditional little things. They make his flight completely maneuverable. He can hover, he can bank, he can fly at speed, you know, accelerate with his fists out or not. His flight is effortless. It's second nature to him. It doesn't seem to exert or use any energy, which is the way we like our flight. Can, can you imagine if you had to strain and pull every muscle in your body just to levitate a couple inches off the ground or to move a little faster or fly faster through the air? Uh, that's, that's not what we want from our flight. The power fantasy of flight is something that's liberating and effortless and freeing. And for that same reason, when we see Superman use flight in the film, it doesn't have that sort of energy drain that we see with the heat vision or even his strength, right? There's no straining or pulling or pushing. In fact, from Smallville on, it almost becomes his default mode of transportation. It's what he defaults to in order to get around. And you see that contrast strongly when he fights Zod initially, right? Zod is still lumbering uh, along the ground and still tied to the earth and bound by gravity and that contrast between how effortlessly superman floats and moves through the world compared to how grounded zod has to be uh, until he discovers his own flight and takes the fight to another level right so i just enjoy how how they they handled all those different aspects of the flight the mechanics we've talked about sort of in strength and other things 
it is just this arbitrary force vector. I don't think there's any way you can sort of rationalize or explain consistent, logical, scientific way that it works. But it does give you this sort of universal magic that you can start to apply in all his other powers or many of his other powers to make them all work. Sort of this ability to just will a force vector into being makes a lot of his other powers work, including flight. And, and it's sort of essential to flight. Now, one of the things that they didn't show us, which is traditional to Superman, and we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, was we have not seen his ability to lift heavy things while flying. Now, I maintain that that's primarily or more because of sort of the awkwardness of showing the physicality of that, the structural integrity issues, the inelegance of that. I think that's the main reason we, we haven't seen it. Not because he can't do it, just because they didn't want to show it, or they haven't found a good language for showing it just yet, or a good enough example to justify showing it yet. But yeah, throughout the whole movie, we haven't actually seen him lift anything heavy while flying. Uh, and there's a couple examples of little things here or there where we uh, where it would have made sense to have seen it. Um, for example, when he's rescuing Lois from the escape pod, he goes out of his way to rip the door off, extract her from the pod, and then just barely protect her from the, from the explosion of the crash of the pod, right? There's reasons you can justify or why he did it that way. But there's also an argument that why didn't he just catch and stop the whole pod, right? I, I think the argument is that the pod was going to self-destruct anyways, whether or not it hit the ground at speed, something to that effect. Or maybe, you know, maybe he recognized the issue from the outset. Maybe he said, you know, this pod does not have the structural integrity necessary for me to grip it, hold it, and bring it to a, uh, a stop uh, in the way that I need it to. So rather than sending it into a tailspin, rather than ripping off pieces of it and compromising the protection that it may potentially give Lois inside, I'm just going to line myself up, come up with a plan to remove the door, remove Lois and save her that way. Maybe that's what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, he didn't, he didn't just catch and stop the whole pod, right? The other implicit scenario where he may have carried something by flying, but not necessarily, is the surrender of his ship to the U.S. government. Now, a lot of people said, didn't Clark give away his secret identity when he volunteered his ship to the government? Shouldn't they have just gone to the farm, seen the ship was there, and then put, you know, one plus one together to equal two and say, Clark Kent is Superman? No, not necessarily. And there, there's many other arguments surrounding that and many arguments that we can have about that. That's another show. And I definitely will be covering that. Um, but instead, let's, let, let, let's get to sort of the rationality of how this worked, right? When we first see the pod arriving on the U.S. airbase, it is within a helicopter harness and it's being lowered into a more specific, you know, holder or um, harness, I guess, so that it can be rolled into the C-17. So it's being loaded into a C-17. And the reason is because the C-17 can carry it and reasonably deliver it at the fastest possible speed to the Black Zero in Metropolis, right? In other words, this is the fastest possible transport, the most efficient way of bringing this thing to Metropolis. If the military was the one that 
picked it up from Smallville. Do you think that they use the slowest form of transport that they have, a helicopter, to move it from Smallville to Metropolis or move it from Smallville to the air base? Of course not. That would have taken way too long. Metropolis would have been dust. The earth would have been terraformed by the time they made that transition. And obviously it wasn't transported to the air base in a C-17 because they're loading it onto a C-17. It wouldn't make any sense for it to have been transported the fastest, most efficient way that they have a C-17 than to unload it from the C-17, put it in a helicopter harness, and then load it back onto a rig to be put back into a C-17, right? So then the question is, how did that get to the airbase? Well, there's two answers, and both of them involve Superman. One is that Superman brought it to the base. You know, he flew it there. He picked it up, used his super strength, used his flight with his super strength to carry it to the airbase and left it there. Because it wasn't mounted on a rig, then they used a helicopter to lift it up, put it into the rig, and then put it into the C-17, right? That's one way we could explain uh, how it got there. The other way we could explain it without using flight, but it's a little cumbersome, is that Superman, while standing on the ground, picks up his ship, loads it onto one of the many farm vehicles that Jonathan Kent had. You know, he did have to move and transport that ship in the first place. And I have no doubt that he could do it with uh, the right farm equipment, which undoubtedly he'd have. And if it's still there and it's still on the farm, then Clark could have lifted the ship and put it onto some farm equipment. He could have taken it out as far as he needed it to go, perhaps hijacked or... (laughs) Uh, borrowed another truck to sort of obscure the identity just a little bit more, and then drove it to the military base. Because for all we know, the military base is right outside of Smallville, right? So it's a small distance. So he tra- so he transports the, the ship to outside the military base. And again, they pick it up by helicopter off of the bed of the truck, lower it down into the rig, and then put it into the C-17. So the, the second case is plausible. It's possible as a way of doing it and preserving the anonymity of uh, his home. But I'm inclined to think the first case is much more plausible because it's the end of the world and there's no point in preserving your secret identity if the world is going to end. So it's in everybody's interest to move at all speed and handle things as quickly as possible. So I'm inclined to believe that Superman understood that too, picked up his ship and flew it to the military base. I think that's the most practical explanation. And that would tend to imply like we've been discussing all along, that Superman can use his super strength and flight at the same time. Now, some of you are screaming at the podcast and saying, well, didn't he crash into the world engine, right? And didn't he crash into that mountain? And yeah, maybe those are examples of super strength and flight at the same time. But it's arguable that those are all examples of durability, super speed, and flight. So Superman's basically just cannonballing his way through those objects, not necessarily applying his strength, perhaps. It's ambiguous. I I admit we don't know. The last thing I want to talk about with flight, and we'll also cover it under the telekinesis catch-all at the very end, is those impressive takeoffs where he has people back up and where there's clearly an extra force emanating from him because the impact in the ground isn't just his footsteps. It isn't just the impression of his fist. Rather, it's a spherical impact upon the earth that extends beyond just his person. So clearly his flight is 
exuding or exerting this kind of force vector. And again, I find that very satisfying because it does sort of cause all these other theories to cohese, but we will we'll move on to the next power. Number 13, telescopic vision. After Superman discovers his ability to fly in the Arctic, he comes home, visits his mother, and while he's with her, Zod makes his appearance, gives his ultimatum to the Earth, and in the process, the Black Zero is hovering over Smallville, and we see Clark quickly zoom in with his vision and use telescopic vision on the Black Zero. Now, to be fair, it could be a sort of convoluted camera trick because a lot of this was shot in a sort of quasi-documentary view and used sort of these these quick zooms in a sort of newsreel style. So it's possible that it wasn't actually telescopic vision, but I'm inclined to think it is. It's one of his traditional abilities. It's one of the powers that makes Superman Superman. And again, as I've said before, acts as lubricant to make his powers work. For example, when Clark... Uh, zones in on the Black Zero and the scout ship specifically while flying at the speed that he was traveling from the Indian Ocean to Metropolis, it tends to make sense that he used his telescopic vision to sort of uh, guide his motions and, and zone in on exactly where he, hit, he had to hit with the precision that he did within the time that he did. Although now that I think about it, talking above, this may have been one of those superhuman reflex moments. That, that he may have done everything through that with, you know, insane reaction time and time dilation sort of ability. But as we discussed above, those kind of, that kind of ability sort of takes him out of the human realm and makes him very difficult to write. And so telescopic vision in this case would be a little bit more of an elegant solution. As a corollary to the auditory omniscience that we talked about before, you may want to check out a fun little YouTube video from Minute Physics called How Far Can Legolas See? Legolas from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The, the short version is it's very similar to the analysis of the auditory omniscience. Light is a wave, right? It travels through a medium. And because of that, there's an upper limit to how far and how accurate you'll be able to see objects with a certain degree of precision. You can overcome some of this with shorter wavelength vision, but even then, it has it has many of the same uh, kind of issues with the hearing over long distances. So, you know, the conclusion ultimately is that Legolas's vision is basically magic. And I think that's the same sort of conclusion we have to reach with Superman at the end of the day. It's that visual omniscience where he's able to see things that otherwise he really can't or shouldn't be able to see. And when we combine all this together, really what we're talking about is extrasensory perception or ESP. But obviously that plays more like psychic powers that plays in a different realm and a different flavor than what we expect with Superman. And so rather than that, we're just going to apply the traditional tropes and we'll stay within the uh, traditional boundaries uh, where Superman's long view and long sight is unlimited, uh, unlimited on range or relatively unlimited on range, but basically line of sight uh, for it to whatever distance or accuracy he would, he would like or prefer. 
Okay, real quick, number 14 is a speculative power again. So so after Zod's ultimatum, eventually we get to Zod's ship, and Zod relates to him that he has been in wandering for 33 years. And so that leads to power number 14, uh, slowed aging, at least compared to humans. And honestly, other than the gray soul patch, I don't think there's much evidence that Zod and his crew has aged. I think some people have said that his temples had grayed. I didn't really see that. I didn't really see it. And on Krypton, he didn't have the soul patch at all. So it wasn't so much that it grayed as that now it exists before it may have been gray as well. I don't know if that was an indication or an attempt to show that he had aged. That is a little bit ambiguous, but I certainly look at Feora and don't say that that looks like a woman that has aged 33 years, right? And the question is, how did this come about? Now, one fundamental and easy way to do it is to say that this is how Kryptonians age. They have had the benefit of generations and generations of eugenics. They've perfected biological technologies. And so maybe Kryptonians simply age at the optimal or most likely lifespan that or are able to achieve with all their technology. And therefore, for them, maybe 33 years is just a drop in the bucket. Maybe their maximum lifespan is twice, three times, four times, eight times or more what our lifespan is. The The great age of their civilization, the, the great stagnancy of it, how easily time slips by for them, it does tend to suggest a sort of more static, long-lived, longer age period. So, it wouldn't be stunning to me to say that the default Kryptonian just lives longer, a lot longer. And if that's the case, then it's not unreasonable, for example, in the prequel comic, for there not to be a murder for, say, a thousand years. You figure some societies in, in America, without a murder for 200 years, is it really unreasonable to say, times that by four, times it by five? You know, depending on how rigid their culture is, how stagnant it is, how how little free will there may be. It's not unreasonable that they should go so long without a murder, and particularly their lives are that long. So that's one explanation possibly of why their age uh, their ages appears to be you know slowed or dragged out. Another is you know the Black Zero was a prison ship. They were in sort of that ice or hibernation kind of material, at least at one point in their stay. They were wandering vagabonds for 33 years without a world and without anything but the things that they scavenged. So with such limited resources and with such desperate hopes, I wouldn't be surprised if they took shifts in hibernation. So the 33 years may have been spent in rotation, being in and out of the hibernation cells that the prison ship itself provided. So that's another explanation. In other words, they were not up and out and fully conscious, all of them, for 33 years the entire time. Rather, they took shifts, and maybe, you know, Zod was only out there for 11 of the 33 years, right? Uh, in which case, the visible aging on his face is a little more plausible uh, and a little bit more possible. Okay, real quick. The implications of this may have in the future films is, it's tough to say, right? Because at the end of the day, Henry Cavill is a human and he will age, uh, as will Amy Adams and all the other cast members of the film. So I don't know how, to what lengths 
They may go to try to preserve his relative age against the humans. Or maybe, you know, we'll say that in, in light of a yellow sun, you actually don't gain this benefit. This is a supposition on my part. So it's very easy for them to say, no, Kryptonians age at, at the same rate as humans. And, and that's that. Last and certainly not least is uh, number 15, telekinesis. Now, telekinesis might not be a fair portrayal of it. I think perhaps a more practical way of describing it is a force field, a field that exerts force beyond the boundaries of their body. Um, we see several examples, just very tangible examples of this throughout the film. One is when Superman is charging up to fly. We see the snow and the particles swirling around his body before he takes off. Another time we see the dust swirling around him just before fighting Zod and swirls in a pattern that is consistent with a field. It almost shows the spherical field around him. A very deliberate and clear example is when Zod rips the armor from his body and it floats around him. It hovers around him, showing that definitively Kryptonians can exhibit force on objects beyond the boundaries of their body. Right, And that has so many different little implications, which smooths out and just really makes this whole Superman thing work. One of them is what we've talked about before, the tactile telekinesis, the ability to lend structural integrity or support feats of strength through touch. So you grab the object, the impossibly large object that you wouldn't ever be able to lift. Even if you had the personal strength to do so, the object itself couldn't withstand the lifting. But with this field, the ability to extend your field onto this object, to exert a field onto the object, perhaps either strengthening the object or at least spreading out the force that you're exerting upon it, suddenly you're able to lift these massive, huge objects that uh, before you weren't able to, right? We talked extensively about super speed mitigation and if you have this sort of field, now we can sort of impart a whole bunch of little crazy magic to, to the field and explain how you can move quickly without causing sonic booms, without causing impact to your rescuees. You can impart invulnerability to them. You can have invincible clothing. You can start to catch people without <laughs> slicing through them, two metal bars sticking out to catch them. Instead, maybe if you can extend your field to objects, then you can uh, impart your invulnerability to them. And once they're strong and durable, then there's no reason you shouldn't be able to catch them at speed, right? Something like that. It also explains things like being able to maintain your personal integrity. So for example, it's not just durability, physical durability of your person, but it's why you can fly through space without having your blood boil and your <laughs> the gases escaping from your body. It's why you can travel at super speed without the air being sucked from your lungs, because you have this field around you maintaining these things, keeping those things in you, regulating your environment. The field can also be an explanation for sensation mitigation, right? It can act as a medium between or apart from, between or apart from all those intense sounds and sights and other sensations, visual spectra that would otherwise bombard the individual. So if you can strengthen or uh, project a field in such a way, or even within your own personal integrity. For example, we talked about the physical way in which you could limit the auditory response in your ear by pulling back the stapes ear. Typically that happens with a muscle contraction, but imagine if you have such 
instinct or control over your personal force field that you can use your force field in order to manipulate the stirrup in the same way or the stapes in the same way. It also works as a uh, powerful catch-all. You know, we haven't talked about the future powers that we haven't seen yet and that may be upcoming, but one of the ones on the top of that wish list is Super Breath. And as we discussed in the flight or super speed sections, the way you breathe is just a small variation in air pressure. And realistically, that small variation in air pressure, that, that move of your diaphragm, it can only compress so much air, right? No matter how forcefully or how strong you're able to do that, you're not going to be able to compress any more air than a certain amount. There's, there's, a, there's just a simple physical limitation on that. And without the compression, without the ability to compress large volumes of air, then you're not able to perform the traditional Superman feat. You're not able to breathe extraordinarily large volumes of air, which are able to push things and blow things over. And similarly, you're not able to uh, have that sort of cold breath with the extreme cold or freezing ability from the extreme evaporation or however mechanically they decide to operate that, if at all. However, the force field acts as a catch-all that enables you to do something like that. Because although you may not have the musculature or the diaphragm or something that actually could physically hold and compress and cause that sort of gaseous compression, a force field allows you to have a fictional or impossible mechanism or pump or valve on your breathing and, and air. So you would be able to have this sort of force field intake or force, force field reservoir holding the air down and allowing you to compress beyond what just your normal physical body would be able to do. And uh, suddenly you have a catch-all explaining how uh, super breath works. All right, so that's that's way, way, way over my time. I didn't touch on some of the other topics that I wanted to talk about. I did want to talk about the interaction with the things that enable these powers and the weaknesses and, and the, the armor and the helmets and the senses and all these other different things. That will definitely be another episode. Thanks so much for listening. I love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me for this whole thing, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful to each and every one of you who listen and hope you'll join my community at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have any questions that you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in our forums for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at manofsteelanswers.com and maybe I'll address your question on the air. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off, and see you next time. You're the answer, son. <laughs>